From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that hits your eye like a big pizza pie. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is The Origin of the Moon. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. So what should we talk about today? Well, we had a recent listener question, which I think you would be well positioned to answer. And that is about the origin of the moon. Where did the moon come from? All right. Where'd the moon come from, Mike? Well, I think to really answer that, I mean, I could just give you the answer, but that's no fun. Okay. <laughs> to this really answer that. was recorded. <laughs> <laughs> to really answer that, I, I think what we should do is talk about some of the evidence for it and why that's backing up, why this is the main idea that people have. But in order to get to the evidence, we have to talk about like, what is the moon actually made of? Mm-hmm. I mean, the details of it, right? Not just like, oh, I don't know, rocks and stuff, you know, but like <laughs> some of the details. And then also, how does it interact with the Earth? You know, what is its orbit like? Is this orbit changing? Is the moon going to eventually crash into us? Or is it going to fly away and leave us? Or is it perfectly stable? Mm-hmm. And so to kind of get into both of those questions, let's talk about what we actually see when we look at the moon. So sure. for anyone who's never actually looked up at the moon, <laughs> uh, What's it look like from Earth? It's funny you say that because I was actually thinking about this earlier. And the moon is one of those things that must be the most commonly viewed thing by all humans for all time from all cultures, right? Mm -hmm. Like no matter where you are on the Earth, every culture for as long as there have been humans have known about the moon. And you can't really say that about any other earthbound feature mm-hmm. right so I, I don't know i just i just find that's kind of cool from our yeah, it sounds like you're stalling though no <laughs> sorry but so from our perspective it's bright mostly white with some gray modeling to it mm-hmm. it ranges in shape from uh, a big circle to a thin wedge yeah and everything in between those are called the phases of the moon uh-huh and that all comes that's all just depending on the angle that the sun is is hitting it. Yeah, we see different shadows on the moon depending on where the sun is relative to it. We only ever see the one face of the moon. It turns out the same splotches that we see like from month to month to month are exactly the same. They don't change. And that's actually been measured very carefully. And Galileo has little sketches of what the moon looked like back in his day in Mm. 16, whatever. And it's the same face that we're seeing today. So which means that the moon's rotation is exactly the same as its orbital period, right? So it's rotating around at exactly the same rate such that the one face is always facing us. Well, okay. So the phrase, the dark side of the moon is somewhat of a misnomer then, right? Yes. It's just merely the side that we cannot see. And so when there's a new moon, which is when the moon is completely dark, it's still the same side that's facing us, Mm -hmm. which is, I suppose, technically speaking, dark. Right. But the dark side of the moon is actually just the side opposite facing Earth. Correct. Which is occasionally illuminated, fully illuminated by the sun. Yeah. So okay. it's, it's a bit of a misnomer in that way. Okay. It's dark as far as our knowledge of what that side of the moon looked like mm-hmm. was completely absent until the late 1960s mm-hmm. when we yeah. finally sent rocket ships around to the other side and, and could take pictures of it. Mm-hmm. So people have joked that the moon was made of cheese. I can't find any like serious scientific papers where that was actually a claim. But early on, people actually thought that all the the dark splotches were actually oceans. Yeah. Because from the ground, it kind of looks like oceans and so forth. And so you can imagine. Actually, all those splotches have names. In general, the splotches are called the maria, which means oceans or seas, really, in Mm -hmm. 
in various romantic languages, and they're mm-hmm. all named. You may remember that Neil Armstrong took the first steps on the moon. They landed in the Sea of Tranquility. That area uh-huh. is called the Sea of Tranquility. That's because they landed in one of the Maria. Okay. And so, yeah, we can get all that information just by kind of sitting here on Earth watching it. Uh, we can also pay attention to its orbit by paying attention to how big or small the moon looks relative in the sky. Mm-hmm. And and it does change a little bit, meaning that sometimes it's a little bit farther away, sometimes it's a little bit closer. But for the most part, the moon is mostly a circular orbit around us. And okay. that'll be important later on as well. Okay. I think it's worth just doing a quick aside here and, and noting that moons are common throughout the solar system, that within the planets around our sun, only... Mercury and Venus are missing moons. Every other planet has at least one moon. Hmm. We only have one, but Mars has two. Hmm. Jupiter has hundreds of them. Okay. Saturn also has a few hundred. And and even Pluto, which is now only a dwarf planet, it has a couple of moons around it as well. Are we going to get into why Mercury and Venus are missing moons? Is it because they're too small or is it does it have to do with their proximity to the sun? Uh, Venus is about the same size as the Earth, Okay, actually. So it, the size is not a factor there. Hmm. Mercury is smaller, but no. So that's a good question. So let's actually talk a little bit about how a lot of moons do form. Actually. Okay. So in order to do that, though, let's take a little step back here. We'll have to do a quick overview of how the solar system in general formed, right? So we've talked about this before. Can you give right. us a quick primer? Well, from what I remember, in the wake of a supernova, there is a large cloud of gas, mostly hydrogen, but some other heavier elements Mm -hmm. that uh, the gravitational pull of those small particles in that cloud of gas started to draw those particles closer and closer together. And the vast majority of all of that mass ended up in the middle and came the sun. Mm -hmm. And, And then around the equator, I guess, were all of these bands of kind of leftover material that themselves kind of aggregated into the planets. Yeah. So there was sort of a rotation built in Mm -hmm. to this entire ball of gas. But you can imagine like if we got on a merry-go-round, you know, when you're on the ride, it feels like it's throwing you back out. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out that if you're orbiting something, if you have just the right orbit, meaning that you're the right distance away, gravity gets weaker the farther away you are from it. Mm -hmm. And so if you're the right distance away and you're traveling the right speed, you can have a stable orbit. Mm. And so only the what are now planets, those are the only things that actually were in just the right orbit to stay put. Everything else eventually spiraled into the sun and Mm -hmm. ran into it. And so, yeah, all the planets are all pretty close to the equator of the sun because that just happened to be the rotation of the entire solar system. And those things just happen to have just the right orbits to stay put. Mm -hmm. And everything else eventually spiraled in towards the sun. That's why the sun is over 99% of the mass is all in the sun. Mm -hmm. And, And we're just like little leftovers here and there. So, okay, why is it necessarily the case that all the planets are orbiting in the same direction. I mean, is there anything that to prevent some of them going clockwise and others going counterclockwise? Well, as far as just the orbits go, no. You could absolutely go opposite the flow. However, the way that they all formed, there was already a a slight rotation sort of built in, maybe from the supernova that you mentioned, Hmm. uh, just caused a little swirl in the currents, right? Just caused a little bit of a, a little... 
so that it there's just a little bit of a spinning around the center of this ball of gas. Hmm. And so that sort of dictated the direction that everything is going, right? It's sort of like if you're making Kool-Aid, you start stirring the Kool-Aid and eventually everything starts going around the pitcher the same direction. I see. For that reason, everything is all going in, in the same direction and only the things that were able to stay stable stayed put and everything else just kind of fell in. Okay. But early on even, the planets that survived were still being bombarded by all sorts of asteroids that were just on their way to falling into the sun. And that's how our planets got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then eventually, you know, all that extra junk kind of ran out and we we're mostly pretty stable now. There's not a lot of junk in the way to run into us anymore. Okay. But from that, you can also kind of imagine how would moons form. Mm -hmm. And so if we're talking about, for instance, big planets like Jupiter and Saturn, they have a lot of moons in part because those planets actually formed the exact same way that the solar system formed. Oh, kind of like little mini, mini solar systems. Yeah. And so as Jupiter was forming, which is mostly a cloud of gas, some of the leftover remnants around it that had enough weight and momentum not to fall into Jupiter right. and kind of aggregated into these little moons. And so I guess that seems to suggest that Jupiter would have had moons from the beginning. Many of its moons from the okay. very beginning. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, but there's some characteristics there. Like if our moon had formed that way, it would be right mm -hmm. in the equator, but it's not. Okay. It's actually tilted like 20 degrees or something from the equator. Oh, I don't think I realized that. Okay. And probably the fact that our moon is much bigger relative to the Earth than any of the moons are around Jupiter relative to Jupiter. I see. Right? Like I gave the ratio that within the solar system, 99% of every all the mass is in the sun. Mm -hmm. Similarly, 99% of all the mass around Jupiter is in Jupiter. And so okay. all these other moons are very, very small compared to Jupiter itself. Okay. So that doesn't really fit with how our moon would have formed. What's the ratio of Earth to moon, our moon? Yeah, it's radius is about one fourth of the size of the Earth. And so, yeah, our moon is much too big to have been made in that way. Okay. So and are other moons from our other planets, are they also tidally locked? Like ours? Is that kind Many of, a of them are. of moons? You used a fancy term there, but tidally locked just means that they're only facing one direction as well. Okay. So just like our moon is, our moon is tidally locked, meaning that we only see the one face ever. And so, yeah, I was talking to one of my students and he was like, my teacher said it was just a coincidence that the moon was showing us just the one face. And I was like, no, that, there's that's physics. That, that's what's going on there is physics. I don't understand. <laughs> why, why would they say that? <laughs> Plus, we've seen it, you know, so Pluto and its largest moon, Charon, they're both tidally locked with each other. Okay. Um, Eo, which is the fourth biggest moon around Jupiter, is tidally locked with Jupiter. And there are other examples. It's a effect. And we've actually had an episode just talking about tidal forces and so forth. But all right. So most likely our moon did not form at the same time as we did. And so we know that there are some other moons around, say, Jupiter that Jupiter probably captured. Hmm. Jupiter is very close to the asteroid belt, and so it can grab from there sometimes. And uh, But that's really hard for it to do because this rock has a lot of energy coming in. And so if it has its own orbit around the sun, it's going to have too much energy to just start orbiting around a planet. Most likely, if it came in, it would slingshot out and make a parabolic shape rather than turn into an ellipse. You have to somehow lose energy on the way in. Mm -hmm. And so Jupiter can do that because it's got a lot of extra crap around it that maybe a moon came in and ran into a few things and that slowed it down so they could actually have a, a stable orbit. So that's possible. Hmm. But we don't have that with Earth and the moon. Okay. And one way that we can tell that that happens is when we look at moons around Jupiter, if their orbits are very what's called eccentric, meaning that they're like, I like to do whatever I want. Ah. <laughs> 
meaning actually that sometimes they're really, really close to Jupiter and sometimes they're really, really far away. Uh-huh. Those have probably been captured because their orbits are not circular. I see. And so when I brought up that our moon's orbit is almost circular, that that's a big deal there. That's important. Okay. So with regard to our moon's orbit, I feel like I've heard before that it is slowly getting further and further away, which mm-hmm. suggests that at some point it was very, very close to the Earth or considerably right. closer. Well, why is that? The fact that the orbit is expanding, does that mean that it has just a little more momentum than is necessary to keep yeah. it? Yeah, so it has just... It's going just a little too fast for where it is, which means that it's just slowly spiraling out. Now, the speed at which it's doing it, you know, as far as our lifetimes go, is completely irrelevant. But we do have ways that we can measure how far away it is. And NASA tracks that very carefully. And they've been able to show that it is slowly going farther away from us. Okay. So one uh, day, a couple billion years from now, it'll yeah. be it'll be so far away that we won't be able to see it very well. Yeah. That's kind of sad. I know. <laughs> Now, when people hear that bit, then they think, oh, well, maybe it just was part of the Earth and it just kind of had fission, basically, it just se- that the Earth itself just kind of separated out. Maybe the Earth itself was just spinning too fast and part of it just flung out and became like back back when the Earth was molten. Yeah. But if that were the case, both the Earth and the moon would still have similar rotations. Even now, the moon probably would still slow down and have its rotation what it is now. But the Earth would still be rotating much faster than it is. So that's probably not what was happening either. The main model that astronomers basically agree on is that most likely what happened was that Earth was hit by something really, really big. And they call this the giant impact theory. Hmm. And they can do computer models to show how if something hit us at just the right angle and and, in just the right way, that that could actually sever off part of the Earth and form the moon. And the outermost parts of the Earth would be the things impacted the most. And so a lot of that would go away. And then less of it would come from the core Mm -hmm. of the Earth. And so we would expect at least the outer crust of the Earth and the Moon to be very similar to each other. But we would not expect them to both have the same relative size core. The Earth has a lot of iron and stuff in the very middle of it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so to know for sure, we can't just do that from Earth. We'd have to actually model this by going to the Moon and collecting samples and doing some studies with that. Can I ask a question? So I feel like in an episode in the past, we talked about how Earth has this black body radiation coming from its molten core. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that probably keeps plate tectonics going. And as Earth slowly cools down, plate tectonics will kind of eventually possibly grind to a halt or something Mm -hmm. like that. Does the moon produce any residual black body radiation as well? Well, so everything has black body radiation. And does understanding how much it's producing help us understand how how old it is? You know, if you take a, a loaf of bread out of the oven and you start letting it cool and you have an idea of how long it takes to cool to such and such temperature, you can mm-hmm. estimate how long it's been out of the oven. Can right. we do that sort of thing for the moon, for its size and its density? And We, in principle, should, yeah. I mean, so okay. I think you're remembering we had an episode, we actually had two episodes talking about one of the missions to Mars, mm-hmm. where they were actually trying to stick a thermometer into the crust of Mars. Right. And trying to measure, like, what is the temperature? You know, we can see what it is on the surface, but mm-hmm. what is it if you dig down deeper? And then they were having trouble being able to actually dig into the Martian surface. But anyway, I don't think they've done the same thing on the moon. Hmm. I think it would be the same sort of an issue with trying to get a thermometer just stuck down Hmm. in there like that. Okay. So that would be an interesting thing to do in the future, but I don't think they've done that so far. There are some ways to get at that a little bit. One way would be to measure moonquakes. For instance, the way we know what 
earth is made of. You know, I just mentioned that we have iron in the core and we have technically two cores. We have a mantle, we have the crust, we have these different layers of the earth. And the reason we know that is because earthquakes, Mm. earthquakes are very, very helpful for this one very specific purpose. (laughs) Mm. That by having seismometers planted all over the earth, we can measure like, okay, so here in Baja, California, there was an earthquake and then we measured it at these other locations. And by seeing how the those waves and signals propagate through the earth, we can actually figure out because at every boundary, some of the wave will bounce off and we can get a lot of information by measuring earthquakes. Hmm. And so we've actually done that also on the moon. So the Apollo missions, which we'll just talk about here in just a second, they left behind a bunch of seismometers on the surface of the moon in order to measure vibrations through the moon, Hmm. to measure moonquakes, basically. And by the way, when we had talked about Mars as well, that one mission to stick the thermometer in there, its other mission is to measure Mars quakes, Mm -hmm. trying to get at the same sort of information. Mm -hmm. It turns out the moon, though, is solid. There's no molten layers or anything like that. Okay, so no plate tectonics. No plate tectonics, no moon quakes are inherently being created on the moon. Okay. Uh, And so then what they learned they had to do was to simulate that. Some of the later Apollo missions, they had to intentionally land really hard. Mm. You know, so rather than coming in with a nice little soft, they were punching the surface trying to make sure that there would be vibrations that the other detectors could measure. Just to make sure that they were on (laughs) and that they're... Well, no. So like if I know that I hit it at this location and then it took a certain amount of time for it to measure on this other seismometer at this other location, Mm -hmm. I can measure how long it took the sound waves to propagate. I can also see if maybe some sound waves went down into the core and bounced off of the core and came back out. And I would be able to measure that delay as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of information you, you can get from quakes. Yeah. And from that, we know that the moon is solid now. It does have a core, but its core relative to the Earth's core is much, much smaller. But all this came about because we had the Apollo missions, which were, you know, from the 1960s and 70s. Several times we sent astronauts towards the moon and did various missions. The first mission was called Apollo 1, and that one unfortunately exploded on the launch pad. And so it killed three astronauts, Gil Grissom, White, and Chafee all died. And then that led to the next several were unmanned missions. And they were doing a lot of tests trying to figure out like in order to get up onto the moon, you have to have a landing module and you have to do some twisting of some of the modules in space because to launch off the earth, you have to have them in a certain arrangement and then you have to rearrange stuff and blah, blah, blah. And Mm -hmm. so they were doing a lot of testing of, is this even possible? Up through Apollo 10 were either unmanned or they they were manned, but they were just intentionally orbiting around the the moon or the earth and just doing some of these docking tests Hmm. to see if they could. Apollo 11 is the famous one. That's when Neil Armstrong took one small step for man and a giant step for mankind or whatever it was he said. And then they did, they ended up landing on the moon six times total. Apollo 13, as you may recall, was supposed to do that, but they never made it. But instead, we got a really cool movie out of it, so. Right. And then... Apollo 14 through 17 were able to do what they needed to do and were successful. So you think that the last person off of the moon in Apollo 17 knew or thought that that would be the last time, at least until now. I mean, no, they didn't. In fact, there's a famous quote where one of the astronauts was like, see you next year. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I I just made that up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to keep that in there. Just okay. 
But they did a lot of things. They actually intentionally landed. The first few landings were intentionally in the Maria, the black splotchy areas, because we could tell through telescopes and stuff that those areas are actually relatively smooth. And so then they thought, okay, those will be nice landing places. We won't accidentally land on a rock or something like that. Mm-hmm. But then they, when they landed, they were able to find places to land and they were able to collect rocks and bring back the six different missions that landed have brought back tons and tons of rocks, not just like a lots and lots of rocks, but tons of rocks that they brought back. And then they've also intentionally landed in some of the lighter color regions as well in order to compare what those rocks are to the dark rocks. Okay. Some other things they did, though, they also left behind intentionally these seismometers so that they could do the measurements of the moonquakes. They also left behind a special mirror so that even now astronomers will bounce a laser beam off of the moon. And this mirror is designed to bounce that light right back to them. Hmm. By doing that, you can measure how long it takes to get there and then to come back. And then you know exactly how far away the moon is. Mm -hmm. And so this is why astronomers know that the moon is slowly getting farther away because we have very accurate measurements of that now. Hmm. So what about these light and dark colored areas? I mean, do we know something about what they're comprised of and how they formed differently, what makes them different, what their history is. Yeah, so they were able to do radioactive dating to the different rocks. Hmm. And what that means is that certain elements will decay into a different element. And by looking at ratios of how much of this element is left and so forth, you can get a sense of how old something is. Mm -hmm. And it turns out the darker colored regions are a lot younger than the lighter colored regions of the moon. Huh? Why is that? Well, it turns out that we now know the dark colored regions are actually volcanoes. And so the early bombardment of the moon made it pockmarked, right? There's craters all over the moon. Then there were these volcanoes that went off and they basically made these circles that smoothed out the pock marks and all the the craters and so forth and put a fresh layer of rock down it's essentially like a lava flow is that yeah huh okay so that must have happened relatively early on if i mean that can't happen anymore right right so we're talking about i i think like three billion were the last volcanic activity, I think. Okay. And so it was before that, that the moon was getting hit a lot more often. And then basically the rate of the getting hit slowed down tremendously after that, just because the solar system ran out of stuff to throw at us. So wouldn't it be cool if it were still volcanically active and you could see it at night, sort of like little orange volcanic eruptions here and there on the... Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. And like to watch these circles just get larger, these like... yeah. Because it's hot, so it would be red circles spreading out. Yeah, okay. And so that then is like volcanic basalt. Mm -hmm. What's the light-colored stuff then? That's also basalt, but it's basically just older and it has a lot more fine dust around it. So it's been, I mean, weathered down for lack of a better word. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so they brought these rocks back. We now know it's it's all basalt, which is basically what the Earth's crust is made of. And so that really supports this idea that maybe the moon used to be part of the Earth as well. So that all kind of ties in together. As I said, they, they were able to measure moonquakes. A fun bit of aside there, though, is that you also can figure out sort of the composition of rocks by how fast the sound waves travel through them. And it turns out the rocks on the moon, the sound travels a lot slower through the crust of the moon than it does through the crust of the earth. Hmm. And so even though the composition is still basalt, which is like silicon and other stuff, which is exactly the same as it is on earth, the sound waves just travel a lot slower through the moon than they do through the earth. In fact, if you were to try to find what solid things sound travels through equally well or equally fast, the thing that it most closely resembles is Gouda cheese. So, <laughs> really? 
Okay. So maybe the moon is made of cheese, but no. Yeah. Has, it has um, a cheese-like feature. <laughs> but most likely what's, what's really happening is that because there's less gravity there, the rocks were, they're just a little fluffier, basically. So Fluffier. Yeah, that's yeah. a funny thing to think. Fluffier rocks. But that that makes sense. They would have like condensed down less vigorously. Yeah. Okay. And so all of this kind of ties together in the same way. So the giant impact theory really is supported nicely by all of these data, right? So if something did hit us, it would mostly knock off the outer stuff and mm. leave behind a lot of the core. And so we would expect the same types of rocks to be on both the Earth and the Moon. We would expect that the cores of the Moon is much smaller relative to the Earth. We could also do what's called isotope testing on the different rocks. And so this is also why they brought rocks back here so that we could do these tests of things that so isotopes are so an element is defined by how many protons are in the nucleus. Mm -hmm. Because the number of protons dictates how many electrons are there and how it behaves chemically and so forth. But you can have an element with different numbers of neutrons in the core, and we call those isotopes. Right. And it turns out that at different parts of the solar system, for some reason, we have different isotopes of some of the elements, that the ratios hmm. are slightly different, that like the ratio of maybe a heavier form of oxygen is more common out around Mars than it is around here. Hmm. And so if you pick up some Martian rocks and you measure what kind of oxygen is inside of these Martian rocks, you can actually get a different answer than what you would get from a rock here on Earth. That's interesting. But the Earth and the Moon both have the same ratio of these isotopes. Yeah, so that seems like it'd be a pretty good fingerprint for where that material came from then. Yeah, I mean, if it was, if the Moon was captured, let's say, if the Moon just happened to be chugging on by and, and the Earth captured it somehow. Yeah, or if we pulled it away from Mars or something. Right, then the, the rocks on there would have a very different isotope signature than what it does have. But okay. it's basically identical to what Earth is. So these all things work together. And so in conclusion, yes, the Earth was likely hit by a very large object at some point in its early age. Yes. Uh, Chad, uh, your your hand was raised. <laughs> is there any hope of finding any sort of remnant of whatever it was that struck the Earth? That's part A. And part B of my question is people who have modeled this out, how large and or fast moving must this thing have been that hit the earth that would have caused this to eject this much material so remnants no so this all happened well before the earth had a crust at all so the earth was okay. still just a big ball of liquid you know molten lava okay so whatever ran into us has been now fully integrated into what we would say is Earth. Uh -huh. So there's no remnant of that. And then how big would it have to be? Well, so it seems that it would have to be pretty big. Some ideas are that it would be something about as big as Mars even. Hmm. So yeah, that sounds pretty serious. Yeah. Yeah. So in conclusion, very likely the Earth was hit by a very large object to cause the moon to break off as, as a self. It severed off a chunk of the mantle, the magma, and some of the core. And these bits all reformed into what is now the moon. And so it's been our companion ever since. Hmm. So thank Indeed. you to the listener who asked us the question. This is yeah. kind of fun to visit. Yeah, cool. Are we going back to the moon? Yes, I think so. But I, I don't think, I know that China is, is working on it seriously right now. Hmm. But I feel like for the United States, at least, that the idea would be more to put Elon Musk on the moon or, or something like that. Or, or to Mars. Somewhere, somehow. Okay. Are there any like manufacturing things or materials sources or things like that that would make it a, I don't know, cost effective thing to do eventually? Like 
you could have a some sort of manufacturing plant on the moon that makes something much better or or can't be done on Earth. Well, the moon part itself would be, I mean, it's got the same surface as Earth. So there's not necessarily going to be a lot of manufacturing. I mean, possibly there could be like some pockets of just like on Earth, like there are pockets of gold, you know, and so... Uh-huh. Maybe that that would be the case. But the real benefit of the moon, as far as like space travel would go, is that it's a lot smaller than the Earth. And so you could imagine doing several missions where you're loading up a way station, basically, where it would yeah, be easier to, yeah, to sort of stage everything on the moon for temporarily and then from the moon go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's where I've heard a lot of people talking about this sort of thing. Hmm. Two books. You can delete this. So have you ever read the book Seven Eves? No. The opening premise is that some sort of celestial object, high speed traveling celestial object sort of zips through our solar system and it happens to just go right through the moon and it breaks it into these, I think initially like maybe five or six or seven large chunks And then those large chunks sort of collide with each other and break into slightly smaller chunks and then smaller and smaller until the moon just kind of disintegrates and then starts falling to the earth and kind of extinguishes most life on planet earth. Mm. So then humanity in order to survive has to like get up into space outside the orbit of this destroyed moon Mm. and then wait for all of the rocks of the moon to finish raining down on earth before they can even begin to think about coming back to the surface of the earth. Hmm. That's a good book. Highly recommend. And then there's a book called Sea of Tranquility, which, uh, I mean, it's not mostly a story about the moon, but there are people who live on the moon in this future time. Hmm. Sounds very tranquil. So nothing really happens. It's just sort of a, a tranquil story. Uh, no, it's it's a great story, but living on the moon is just, I think, part of the world building mm. and a little bit less about the plot, I suppose. Ah, uh-huh. But it's part of the world. So yeah. anyway, highly recommend. Okay. But yeah, thanks for making me smarter about the moon, Mike. You're welcome. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should ask us a question and we'll happily address your questions as well. Or email us at crisscrossingsci.gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.